You're listening to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, an author, speaker, and apologetics professor at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, professor of Christian ethics, also at Talbot School of Theology. Thanks so much for joining us. We are back for a second show with Brett Kunkel. Brett, you went to Biola as an undergrad, did your master's in philosophy at Talbot, 11 years of youth pastor, 14 years with Stand to Reason. That means you've been in youth ministry 25 years, quarter of a century, and your grandpa. That, mean, that means I started when I was 10 years old? That's crazy. <laughs> exactly. And you've got a super neat ministry uh, called Maven that we would encourage listeners to check out. But you also have a new book out that's you wrote with John Stone Street. Well, I mean, let's be honest. I actually just let John put his name on there. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we're, someone had to do the heavy lifting. We're so. having John on next. <laughs> oh, You're wait, aware of that. wait a second. After you, let so me... you better rein it in. <laughs> yeah, no, John was a great co-author. It was a great project to work together on. I think we brought some unique things to it and, and brought that together. You gave me the chance to endorse it, and I was more than happy to. But let me ask just kind of the big question. It's called A Practical Guide to Culture, Helping the Next Generation Navigate Today's World. Let's start with a 30,000-foot view. Why did you write this book? What were you hoping to accomplish with it? I have five reasons for writing this book. Lexi, Micah, Paige, Ella, and Jonah. Uh, those are my five kids. That's the reason I wrote the book, because I have a responsibility to disciple those kids primarily in this culture. And I, as a parent, I'm feeling the challenges. We all feel those challenges. We feel how the culture has changed. It presses in. It's more challenging. So uh, I need to know how to help my kids navigate this culture. I guess I have a sixth reason now, and that's mm. Annie. That's uh, my oldest daughter, Lexi, got married in May of 2016, and she just had uh, our first grandchild. So there's another uh, little one in the Kunkel family who we need to help uh, navigate a challenging culture. So really, that, that's my motivation, is my, my kids um, for writing this book. And we wanted to give something that was both, that hit the ideas and the theory and the worldview stuff, and, and at the same time, didn't just stay there, but that gave parents and pastors and youth workers and grandparents and leaders very practical tools and ideas that they could implement immediately. So there's a good balance between the ideas and the practicality. Just for the record, you gave me a hard time in the last show about having more gray hair, but you are a grandpa. I'm not close to being a grandpa. <laughs> that's right, that's right. There And there are some of my friends who are a little bit older than me that they, they take pride in not being, they're like, well, you're the grandpa, but here's, here's my question to, to those older gentlemen, they know who they are. Would you rather be a grandpa or would you rather look like a grandpa, mm. right? <laughs> would you rather look like a grandpa and not have the benefits of being a grandpa? So, you know, I am a young, very young grandpa, but it's I, we're, I think this is going to be pretty fun. I'm going to be able to enjoy my kid. I'm sure you will. I thought it was interesting. You called the book Navigating Culture. So you're not saying we're against culture. You're not saying we're above culture. Will you first off define for us what you mean by culture and the perspective you're taking or saying that Christians should have like our posture mm. in light of culture? Yeah, uh, culture is an interesting word for Christians. Um, oftentimes, the way we talk about culture is in this very negative way. Like culture is, 
It's pop culture. It's debauched Hollywood. It's the bad songs that our kids are listening to. It's all this bad stuff. That's culture. And so if that's our view of culture, then you can see that our posture towards culture is going to be one of standing against it all the time. Um, but uh, And then, uh, then there's going to be this kind of fortress mentality, this withdrawal that I don't think is the way that we're supposed to interact with culture. I think a, a very simple definition of culture uh, is this. Culture is what human beings make of the world. It's what we make of the world. And so wherever you find human beings, you're going to find culture. So it includes things like our institutions that we build, the structures of a society that we build, our ideas within the culture, our heroes, our villains. I mean, it's all of that stuff. So culture in and of itself isn't bad. It's what we do with it. It's what direction we take it in. And so in that sense, there will be different times in, uh, that a, a Christian will relate to culture, or different ways a, a Christian will relate to culture. So there will be times where we need to be against things in the culture. So, for instance, on uh, the issue of abortion, when uh, innocent children in the womb are being killed, that's something we want, we, we've got to be against and we've got to fight against. But there are other times where, you know, someone makes a, a movie, a good movie, right? Um, any, any Marvel movie, of course, is what <laughs> you're thinking, Sean. But you have a good movie that's out there that, that promotes some virtue, right? Or puts vice in a bad light. Uh, that's the, we can celebrate that as well. Uh, even if the movie maker wasn't a Christian. I mean, imagine that. Or a beautiful piece of art or, you know, those kind of things. So sometimes we can be for those things in the culture. Um, so, yeah, so that's, I, th I think, uh, kind of what culture is and, and how we ought to relate to it. You know, one of, the, one of the things that comes out in your book sort of repeatedly is this notion that ideas have consequences. I like what you add to that when you say, and bad ideas have victims. Give, us, give our listeners some examples that you have in mind of how some bad ideas have produced victims. Yeah, well, I, gosh, there, there's, there's so many. It's hard to even think of what to, what to um, hone in on. But let's just take the, I mean, we talked about the issue of abortion. So there are ideas in the culture, especially, and you hear this a lot about uh, with young people, where th there is this, um, this, uh, th this tendency and this impulse to want to have absolute autonomy, right? And so, so then this idea that I am an absolute autonomous being who gets to basically determine my own destiny gets played out in different ways. So with something like the issue of abortion, right? The issue becomes not what is that thing in the womb, the unborn child, but what is my right what, you know, what do I get to do with my body? And it gets, it gets reframed in that way. And so these ideas have consequences for then uh, motivating action. So a young person says, ah, I got pregnant um, in college. Okay, I'm not ready for this. Abortion is simply one of my options. Uh, I'm an autonomous person. I can make that decision. They make that call. And then there's devastating consequences for the rest of their lives for that person. Um, and so that, that's the, the, the kind of example. Technology, uh, the ideas that come through technology and our use of technology. Um, uh, you know, thinking that, uh, uh, I, I, again, this, this idea of autonomy and I can use this thing however I please. I, I simply determine these kind of things. And there's, so, you know, so the, the whole idea of accountability or obligation, 
or obligation to other people in my community, uh, you know, th- th- that those ideas are gone. And so there are consequences of those bi- bad ideas as they play out. Yeah, the other term I like that, that you've, you've coined in the book that I'm not familiar with before is uh, the term you use, you describe baloney detectors. How do you incur, how do you teach students to have a sharp and well-functioning baloney detector? I think it starts by uh, grounding our kids in the truth first. In fact, when you know, I talked about some of the unique mission trips and, and, and exposing kids to atheists or skeptics or people from other religions, but when I do that, there's something I do first before I ever take them on one of these trips. They are trained, they are taught, they, they are exposed to the truth first, then error. And I think that is key in helping to develop this kind of, you know, baloney detector, is that they need, to, they need to know the truth first, so then they're able to spot error. Truth first, then error. And I think this starts when our kids are really young. So this, don't wait till junior high or high school to do this. This begins when they're two and three and four years old. This is where we begin the process of teaching them theology. This is why with our, you know, our, our kids, when they were two and three, we would start taking them through a children's catechism to teach them theology. And catechism, so it's, it's funny, some of the evangelical response I get when I use that term catechism, people go, oh, that, that's a Catholic thing, you know, we got to stay away from that. <laughs> catechism is simply putting theology into a question-answer format. And I, I ask my kid the question. You know, who made you? It's the first question of the catechism. They memorize the answer, God. Mm. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. And, my, mm. and so then we're walking through this. The kids are memorizing. Now, here's sometimes we think, well, they, but they don't understand everything. Yeah, of course they don't. That's okay. I'm pouring into them all this raw material. Some of it they'll understand. Some of it it's fun to watch kids over time reflect on it and then have this aha moment. And then some of it, it, yeah, it's going to be there so that I can continue shaping it when they are in junior high and high school. Uh, but that foundation begins right from the get-go. You have a chapter on the information age, which seems very timely. And I'm curious, some people say the internet has created the dumbest generation was the title of a book. And yet I was asked recently by a high school student about the ontological argument for the mm-hmm. existence of God. Yeah. And I'm just curious, what's your take do you take one or the other? Is it both? And how has this information explosion just shaped this younger generation? Yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword. So the access to information is great. The access to authors and thinkers and writers uh, is is great. I mean, if you want to read some of the great works of Western civilization, well, they've been posted on the internet. So that that's a great part of it. And um, I, I think the, the, the challenge is that there's so much out there and there's so many bad sources out there that it's hard for a young person to discern what's mm-hmm. a good source of information and what's a bad source. I can do a Google search for any topic and get, you know, a, a million hits and I have no idea how to sort through that for, you know, a young person. So, uh, so that's what they're thinking. And so then I think one of the, the, the challenges is then they, they, they lose authorities in their lives. They're not sure who to trust as an authority, right? And because uh, and, there's so many voices. And this is why it's important for 
us with when it comes to technology. Technology is limited in what it can do. This is where the church, the community of, of believers, is so vital for a young person to be grounded in, so that they can see men, real life, flesh and blood men and women, in their lives who are who can be those authorities, who they can go to. And it's not just well, whenever I ha- I need some help, I go to Google. But no, I've got this. Mom, mom or dad—that's this wise, you know, wise person. Or I have this this leader at my church, or this grand, or you know, whatever. There are these older people at church in their community who can be those sages and help give them that wisdom that you don't get by googling something. So this is what you mean in the book by thinking worldviewishly. That was kind of a new word for me too, like baloney detector. What, <laughs> what do you mean by that? What does that look like with with students? Yeah, so I, you know, I've been doing apologetic stuff for a, a long time, and apologetics is good and necessary and important, right? So I'm all for it, but I think sometimes those of us in the apologetics community have to understand that apologetics can be kind of narrow, and um, it's not the end all be all. In fact, if we think about it properly, apologetics is a sub branch of theology, but there's this larger, right? area of theology that, that um, really, I think, is, connects with this idea of thinking worldviewishly. The, 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 another way to put it is uh, we need to think theologically about yeah. everything. Uh, I want young people to know, to know the truth and defend it, but then I also want them to see how it connects to every single area of life. In fact, one of the unique mission trips we did uh, two years ago with, uh, with my home church is we did a worldview road trip. And in part of that trip, we, we taught the kids about the fallenness of man, right? Took that aspect of human nature. And then we went to Sacramento. We, we, we did some looking at government and economics and, and that kind of thing. How, does, how do Christian insights play out here? But when we were doing the training, we did a, a talk. One of our trainings was on economics. And I remember one of the kids at the beginning of that talk his question was, what are we doing talking about this subject in church? Wow. I mean, how revealing is that? His faith had absolutely no connection to this huge area of economics, which touches almost every area of his life, right? Um, so that's what I mean by, by thinking worldviewishly. Okay, how does Christian truth apply to everything I do across the board? How does it pervade my life? Uh, whether it's social media or technology or economics or business or, or, or what have you, any area. Yeah, I actually can't think of one aspect of our earthly life that doesn't have something mm. either directly or indirectly to do with economics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're so right to point that out. Let me take off on something s- similar to that. In, in the earlier parts of your book, uh, you, you describe uh, your view of work and calling and vocation, things like that. What Spell out a little bit more. What's the view of work and vocation that you talk to students about? Well, I think in the church, we we often hold up the quote-unquote spiritual callings as these higher callings. And so if you're going to be a pastor or a missionary or, you know, something like that, well, well, that's really a calling that you got to hear from God for that calling. Um, now, if you're going to be a businessman or a nurse or a doctor or, or a store clerk or whatever it is, okay, that's nice. And, and really what you can do is make money so you can help the people that have the real callings. And um, what, again, that, and this, is, this connects with the idea of thinking worldviewishly. 
what I want to help young people realize and understand is that um, the, 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 the calling on our lives is a, a general call to see everything and every, I think it was Abraham Kuyper right, who talked about how there's not a single square inch of reality where Jesus doesn't say, you know, mine. And that's the idea is that no matter what area you go into, um, the, the, the Christian worldview has huge insights for that area, and there is a Christian way or a, a, a Christian approach to that, to the enterprise itself. I'm not just thinking of like the businessman who says, okay, we're going to start our day with prayer, or I'm going to use business as an opportunity to evangelize. All that's good and wonderful. But what about the business or what about the enterprise of business itself? For instance, um, you know, think about Jesus's words to us about serving. Does that have application to business? I think so. You have a business owner who has customers. You serve your customers well, right? There's, there's insights there even from Jesus, I think, for business. And so it's the enterprise itself, the activity itself, that can be a calling where, the, where Christ and his truth are integrated to every aspect of it. And there's not this kind of bifurcation between the, the sacred and secular. You got your sacred callings like pastors and eh, your secular callings like business. No, you shatter that paradigm. And anything that you go into, any area of study, can be used uh, to, 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 um, to the glory of God. And Christian insights can apply to that area. I'm so glad to hear you articulate it in, in that way, because I think that that's so consistent with what the Bible teaches. Uh, and I love how, you, how in the first part of the book, you relate that to the, the big story of the Bible, you know, the, the four-chapter Mm-hmm. view of the big story of the Bible. Tell, tell our listeners, what are those four chapters, and especially how do those bookends connect to this view of work and vocation? Yeah, there's, uh, there's an, it's important for us as believers to keep the, uh, the, the moment, the cultural moment that we're in, uh, and the story, the larger story, straight. And so what we wanted to do was, and we're not, this is not unique to us, to John and I, but we want to say, okay, what's that larger story? How do we categorize it in a way that's, it really kind of provides this framework. And so the, the four acts of the story are uh, creation. It starts with creation. Uh, a good God has created a good world. Uh, then you have the fall, right? The fall of man that breaks everything. And then you have redemption. And that's this act that we're in where God is, is redeeming us unto himself. Uh, and then lastly, we have restoration, where he will make all things new. And I think the, you know, this, so this, this is our framing story. This frames everything. And so when we, one of the insights that we get from creation is that when God makes the world, he makes it good. Uh, you know, and, and we are given this cultural mandate to subdue the earth. And we are made in his image. We are image bearers. And so what we so so how does this inform kind of calling and business and that kind of thing and work? Well, we are we're sub-creators, made in the image of God. We take the good world that God has made and we create beautiful things from it. And so a young person who um, you know, who's an who's an artist or makes music or does film or, you know, those kind of things, they they take the natural resources of the world. And as a sub-creator, made in the image of God, with the ability to create, they, they make good things. Um, and, and that in and of itself reflects 
you know, God. It reflects our, uh, you know, our nature's image bearers. It reflects his beauty. We, we create culture and we give it back to the world. And we la- allow those things to point back you know, to the beautiful one as we create a beautiful, not just a piece of art, but a beautiful business. And, we, and we'd call that ministry yeah. or service, I think, is the, the better term to translate mm-hmm. that word diakonia from which we get often ministry, but our service. I, I think you take it even further, opportunities to serve. It's also, I think, the best opportunities we get to love our neighbor. Yep. And the, the Barna research, I think, has been very persuasive on this that shows that churches and youth ministries that really solidly address this idea of work and calling and vocation – Students who get that when they're high school and college students have a three times more likely chance to retain their faith and retain meaningful involvement in yeah. their churches. Yeah. It's a really important part of it. Yeah, there's a there's a huge struggle with young people. For many of them in our evangelical churches, God operates in the background of everyday life. And so when you do this, you bring them front and center. You help them to see how he, uh, he he's relevant to everything and that he's not just this genie who you call on when you need help but that actually he is involved deeply in every aspect of life. When I picked up the book, I was curious what topics you were going to talk about specifically in culture. So there's a few I expected. You talk about pornography, and I'm thrilled you guys are willing to address that. Talk about sexual orientation, racial tension. But then there's a chapter titled Affluence and Consumerism. Talk to me about the decision to include that and what parents and teachers need to know to help young people navigate on that issue. Okay, so there's a book that, that parents and leaders need to read. It's called The Price of Privilege. And essentially, uh, in that book, what the author does is shows us that the affluent kids, those kind of middle-class suburban kids that we think, oh, yeah, they've got, they've got the American dream. They're, you know, they've got education, they've got money, they've got technology. Uh, those kids are happy. No, they're absolutely not. They're mm-hmm. actually uh, less happy than, uh, than other demographics. And so what we've done for our young people is we've given them this view of the good life that is a false view, that, it, that at the end of it is emptiness. And, uh, and, but so much of life is oriented this way. Right. In fact, when you look at the topics, we, we chose those topics because we, as we talk to young people, these are the things that they are, they are having more conversations about. These are things that are touching their lives more. Uh, now, look, are, do kids need to know about uh, you know, an apologetic issue like the existence of God? Yeah, absolutely. But I, I found that not a whole lot of kids are having that conversation right now. They're, these are the conversations we've identified. And so, uh, you know, uh, what they're what they're wearing, what they're buying, what kind of car they're going to get. I mean, those those are part of the everyday conversations. But these end up being huge roadblocks for many of them in their faith, and so they've been oriented all their life towards this view of the good life that says good life is essentially pleasure, pleasurable experiences, uh, material goods to bring pleasure, and what ends up happening is they take that kind of God-shaped void in their life, and they, they fill it with stuff. And it doesn't, it, it leads to emptiness. It leads, and what you find is just greater rates of, amongst young people today of anxiety and depression and, mm-hmm. and being on antidepressants. And so that's why you felt like that was a huge need to address because I think, I mean, let's be honest, the evangelical church struggles with this, with its own affluence and materialism. 
And so uh, unfortunately, we have passed a lot of that on to our kids. So what do we do in response to that? Is it just not give our kids things? Is it take them to go serve the poor? These are the typical answers I hear. What are some tips that you give? Well, I'll tell you some of the things that we do in our own home. Um, number one, from the very get-go, we, we, my wife and I teach our kids, number one, to work, and that work is a good thing. So we've, we've kind of you know, simplified our goals for the, our kids, that we want to kind of, things that we want to pass along to them as they leave our home. But one of them is we want to help them develop a work ethic. So that means starting off working very young. So it's when our kid is a two-year-old, we have them help you know, clear things from the table. Um, we'll help them, we'll have them help around the house. And, and, and then we talk about work in very positive ways because we know that they're being shaped by this pleasure-oriented culture that says, oh, work, that's bad. And we say, no, work is actually a very good thing. Toil can be a very good thing. And we want to celebrate that. And another thing that we do is we don't give our kids a lot of things. We have them earn it. We have them work towards it. So uh, my, my 10-year-old, she, her older sister, uh, has a Disneyland pass. So she wants to get a Disneyland pass, right? And uh, it's about, I don't know, $300 investment. So we've told her, all right, go for it. Earn the money <laughs> and save up and do it. And so she has been in just... This is about a month ago. I'm driving in the car with her, and she did her last task to get that last bit of money to get that $300 to get that Disneyland pass. And we're driving in the car, and I can see she's thinking. Her The wheels are going, and she, unprompted, she says, Dad, it really feels so much better when you work hard and and earn something for yourself wow. rather than it just be ga- being given to you. Wow. And yeah, I just, I mean, I could have wept, you know, that was like that. Oh, okay. She's, you know, she's, uh, she's not entitled. She's not spoiled. You know, her, um, she sees the, the value in toiling and work and, and some of the reward. Now she gets to enjoy some, you know, one of, uh, you know, a, a gift from God, a Disneyland pass. So that, that's one thing that we've tried to do is get our kids to work, have them earn their, their stuff. Uh, work hard for it, and then at, with, with with that, we also have them give. So we have a thing that we call a giving box in our house, and it's just a little wooden ba- box, and we encourage our kids when they earn money is to put a portion of their money in the giving box, and we so we collectively do that. And then as needs arise, we look for opportunities to give that money away, and the kids get input into that. So uh, recently, there was a couple from Talbot who uh, needed to move across country, and uh, they didn't. They were dirt poor. They, you know, they they needed some help, and so the kids decided, "Hey, let's take all the money in the giving box and let's let's bless that family," um, and and then they get to see the reward of generosity and giving. And uh, so, those are just some of the practical things we do, do in our home. Brett, these are some wonderful insights about culture, but also some helpful practical things that we can do. I'd certainly commend to our listeners your book you wrote with John Stone Street, A Practical Guide to Culture, Helping the Next Generation Navigate Today's World. Thanks for coming on. I'd also encourage our listeners to check out your new ministry focused specifically on young people and also in the world of apologetics and worldview. You're doing a great job. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Brett Kunkel, and to find more episodes, 
go to www.biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.